Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones. I'm your host. This is Season 8, Episode 8. Today I'm talking with Keith Corbin. He's the author of the new book, California Soul. He is also the chef at Alta Adams Restaurant. And um, I really have a lot to unpack about my conversation with uh, Chef Keith Corbin and uh, you know, both the reading the book and talking to Keith was a kind of eye-opening and life-changing experience. And I want to go on about it quite a bit, but I have decided that instead of doing that, I'm going to stop here and just go to the conversation and urge you to listen to uh, Keith and what he has to say. My comments here are not so much important as what chef keith has to say so i'm going to take you right now to that and not blather on any further here we go to my conversation with chef keith corbin of his new book california soul welcome to the well season librarian podcast i'm your host dean jones and today i'm honored to be talking to keith corbin who wrote the new memoir california soul an american epic of cooking and survival Corbin is the James Beard Award-nominated chef and co-owner of Alta Adams in Los Angeles. His modern California soul restaurant was named one of the best new restaurants in the country by both Esquire and Thrillist, and since opening, has consistently been on the LA Times best restaurant list. A native of Watts, Corbin was formerly director of operations for Roy Choi and Daniel Patterson's local restaurant group, and also worked for Patterson at his Michelin-starred fine dining restaurant, Koi, in San Francisco. Keith, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I want to ask you first off, um, what inspired you to write your memoir? Um, a couple of things. One, well, you know, growing up, well, how, growing up in where I grew up in the impoverished community, you have dreams of doing things, you know, buying a house, white picket fence, getting out of the ghetto, writing a book, you know, before you even feel you have a story to tell, right? Those are symbols of success in our eyes right there's not too many successful people around us so those are are symbols of success um but i never believed i would have a chance to write a book but when i did get the opportunity um to write the book it was very important for me to one be honest and truthful about my life up until this point because i wanted the book to be an inspiration and you know a motivation for people that were in similar situations that I was in. And I've been in many situations, drug addiction, prison, post-prison, um, impoverished, marginalized communities, poverty, dealing with parents on drugs. So I wanted to be able to, one, tell an honest story to connect with those readers in order for them to see my success as something that can be accomplished by them as well. Uh, one of the things that was hard for me to do was take advice or listen to people that I didn't feel connected with me, you know, when they're giving me advice. It's like, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't want to hear that. You know, you had an easy life, whatever. So I wanted to be totally honest and connect with, with those folks in, in order for them to see my success as theirs. Now, many of the chefs I talk to are influenced by um, family um, in, in their cooking. And oftentimes they cite like a relative, like a grandparent or somebody like that. Who influenced you in your cooking? Um, definitely my grandmother influenced me with, with food. Um, it, has, it wasn't as if, you know, I was the Italian grandkid of an Italian grandmother who's working in a restaurant, making pasta from scratch, and I'm hiding under the tables and running through the restaurant and eating food, and then she's giving me lessons of rolling pasta or making pasta. I just connected with my grandmother in the kitchen. My grandmother had raised her kids. Like I say, my mother was um, on drugs. She was smart enough to give us to her kids to her mother until she was able to get her life on track, which she did, and she came back and got her kids and raised us. However, my grandmother would get up at four or five in the morning um, and spend the whole day prepping and cooking for dinner. You know, just really 
putting pouring love into um, the dinners and meals that she made. And she always made enough to feed the community or for those who were there when it was time to eat. So my love for feeding people, excuse me, my love for feeding people um, is what I've gotten from my grandmother. There was no recipe books left behind. There was no one-on-one -on -one training or teaching on how to create or cook anything. It was that love for feeding people that, um, that I picked up on. I can tell from reading your book that it was very important for you to be honest and um, upfront about things in your life, like cooking and selling drugs as a teenager. Did your publisher try and talk you out of it? Did anybody try and change the narrative or did you have to kind of, you know, be very strong on how you wanted this or were they accepting of um, how you wanted to tell the story? I mean, again, like I was saying, when I got the opportunity to write the book, that was important for me to be honest and for me to be able to tell an honest story. And, you know, up until writing a book, my narrative was being told by everyone else, right? And they would start at one point from prison to executive chef, this to that. They never really gave the whole story that I would give them in an interview. They just took sound bites. So it was important for me to control, take back control of my narrative and tell my truth um, and, and not give this false narrative of this magic door that you come from prison to get a job and everything else is okay after that. So um, that was in the negotiation room that I was gonna be able to tell my story if we were gonna go with this publishing house. And they were okay with that. Like they really, um, they really was okay with that. Yeah. Um, now your cooking career really started in prison how did that experience inform your cooking? I wouldn't say that my cooking career started in prison. Um, the kitchen has always been a theme in my life. You right. know, spending time with my grandmother in the kitchen um, and spending time in the kitchen as surviving in, in the streets cooking drugs to landing in the kitchen in prison. Um, so my cooking career started at Loco when I was able to work with Daniel Patterson. Prison was just, you know, a, 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 another situation, just like growing up. I had to make my own breakfast and lunches. Yeah. When my granny made dinner, we had to feed for ourselves. Um, so the creativity and, and taking something and making it, taking nothing and making it into something has always been a part of my journey, my life. And prison just was a continuation of that. Um, so I didn't do anything in prison that I wasn't doing already. And I figured that out when I got a professional job as a chef or as a cook, that uh, it was much harder than what I thought it was gonna be. Many parts of the book stuck with me. Um, and I, I, I just am really excited to talk to you so soon after reading it and then talking, my wife read it also, and we got to talk about it a lot. There was, a, a couple parts that stuck with me. One that was that I, it always like kind of a, kind of sticks under my under my skin is that you went and you had a job with the an oil company and yeah. I think after prison and you were doing well and then they penalized you for having a prison record and it's like it kind of confounds me because one thing I always hear is everybody's like oh everybody's equal we have an equal playing field all you have to do is just get a job blah 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 and then I'm like no it's not the case and this this really seems to underline that. Can you talk about that a little bit? So growing up, you, so for one, you can only operate off what you know, what you know, yeah. what you learn, what the examples are in front of you, right? Um, so people from, folks from my community that was coming home from prison, they always got labor jobs. So when I, when it was, <laughs> I hate to say it like this, when it was my turn to come home from prison, I only sought labor, a labor job because I thought that was the only, um, the only place to get work, right? That was the only examples I had in my life. So I, I got a job at the oil refinery and I, and I worked my butt off because at that time I wanted to do something different with my life. I wanted to change. I don't want to sell drugs anymore. I didn't want to put myself at risk of going back to prison. I wanted to be there for my kids. Um, so I started, I, I went to the oil refinery and I got a job. At the time they wasn't doing background checks. 
And so I worked my butt off. You know, I was committed, showed up, put the work in, stood out to where they offered me a promotion. That promotion was um, a foreman position where I would have my own crew lead my own crew. But that required me to drive company vehicles, you know, use company equipment. So they had to run my license. Unfortunately, at this time, they, the background checks were just now being implemented. And had I not got the promotion and just stayed at a lower level position, I would have been fine because it wasn't retroactive. It wasn't, um, they wasn't going back, doing background checks on employees that was already there, only on those that was coming in after the, the uh, background checks implemented. But because now they're running my background after the background checks, I was exposed. Um, I was subjected to it. And when they, when they realized my background, they didn't have a conversation with me. They did not um, say to themselves, oh yeah, he has a background, but he's shown us how hard he worked to the fact that we're even promoting him in the company, all that, right? They just literally came and walked me to the gate, took my badge, had me clock out. And in that moment, I just felt like there was no way. Like, you know, the system is just unforgiving. Uh, this whole thing of going straight and getting a job, it didn't really apply. I realized in that moment that a lot of this stuff that the politicians and people talk about, it's just talk. You know, in real life, it's not happening. There's no rehabilitation in prison. And yeah. there's really not second chances outside of entrepreneurship for people that's coming home from prison, unless you're getting a low, low level job that you can't even survive off of, you know? Um, so for a couple of weeks, I was just riding around debating, like was the streets and drugs the only way forward for me? And luckily God answered a prayer and my mother called me and was like, get over here. They got a restaurant they just built in the community and they hiring on the spot. And I went down there, filled out the application, which was, I think, four lines on there. Your name, your birthday, um, regardless. I can't remember yeah. what four lines it was, yeah. but prison background, do you smoke weed? None of that was on there. Yeah. It was general information, they hired me. Now, this was uh, Daniel Patterson and Roy Choi's uh, restaurant local. This yeah. was a pivotal turning point in your life, as well as many people in the community as well. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, what do you want to know? Yeah, so I mean, so they, they opened up this restaurant and they had to kind of come in and build it. And they had to kind of hire people from the community. And this was kind of a new thing, you know, that they were doing. They're kind of trying new food. And it was kind of a new enterprise for them because they had come in kind of fresh. They were kind of doing something new for them. And it was something new for the community and everybody working there. So everybody was kind of on the same page, creating something from the ground up. It must have been kind of a, a magical time period because they're kind of like, you knew the analogy of kind of building a ship while it's sailing. Like that seems to be the case. Like like as, as they're going, they're kind of like creating. Was that kind of like a magical time? And, and how much input were you able to have in, in the... So first I wanna um, change a word that you used when you said they had to hire in the community. Everything that local did was by choice. Yeah. They chose to come in. So they chose to come into the community a year, two years prior to even opening this restaurant to get the field, to meet the community, to find out what the community needed, to, to actually be a part of the community before the restaurant opened. Um, then they chose to hire in the community. And the idea was, after four years of the restaurant up and running to turn the restaurant over to the community and move on to the next project. That was the idea for Loco. It was an investment in the community. Was it a magical moment for some? It was a challenge for me. And I think it was a challenge for many people because for one, it was our first time actually having a job. It was many people first time working. It was people, I had a chance to hire people. So I was hiring folks that was coming home from prison who yeah. needed a job to report back to their parole officer. Um, we hired people who had general feuds in the community and trying to get them to work together under one roof when they were just out trying to kill each other. Yeah. So it was a lot of firsts going on at Loco. 
So it was building the ship as it was selling. Yeah. Um, but the magical part of it for me was seeing these lives change, including my own. You know, we were still battling with a, a lot of things because we got that job. Didn't mean that life before that changed. Like a lot of those problems still followed us through that door. Um, but you have, I'm sitting here today because of Loco. You have someone like Pernicia Coleman, who is have her own trucking company, you know, got her first job with Loco and it set her on the path of, um, so she opened her own trucking company. Um, you have Ronald, who came home from jail and needed a job for his parole officer, who now sits as a talent acquisition for Interscope, right? You have, like, so he finds talent in the community and do co-deals co with Interscope. You have Lamar Lamont, who has created his football program and have put many kids through college and has now successfully have one of their kids make it to the NFL. You have Corey in the Bay Area who now has a cleaning company, has contracts with many restaurants and hire employees. So that's the magic of Loco. Like that's the magic of Loco. Um, I named a few, did everybody make it? No. Yeah. But there's some who made it who wouldn't have had a chance otherwise. What was some of the food that um, was created for local when it started as opposed to what it evolved to over time? Like what changes were made to the food that was created when it started? So the food, so first local was a chef driven restaurant that challenged fast food. Um, so Daniel Patterson came in with the, with the concepts of taking raw ingredients from, from start to finish. We did everything in loco. We actually learned how to cook proper vegetables, proper things in loco, um, do things the right way. We made chili, we made um, foldies, which is a taco slash burrito street food. We made um, burgers where the ground beef was mixed with things like quinoa and barley and you know grains mm -hmm. uh, we made we fermented our own grains we made our bread from scratch um everything we made in loco we made everything in loco and then over time you know we went to some of the traditional things um and we started making pizza and we changed the burger to a traditional burger because just the community wasn't ready for um, that level of food yet or that style of food yet. What was the impact that local had on the community where it was based? Got a great impact. Like I say, like the many lives that was changed. Um, you still have the community calling out to me, asking me, what are we going to do with local? When are we opening local back up? Like they still ask that right now as you may have somebody driving past and call my phone and like, man, I just passed by Loco, man. And I'm just, man, when are y'all opening back up? Like when, when, what we gonna do with Loco? So the community loved it. It gave a place for them to come and kick it. Um, network because you had people coming to the community from outside of the community. Relationships was formed. Um, it had a great impact on the community, like a, a great impact on the community. Like Loco during the height of the gang war in Watts, Loco was established as a safe haven agreed upon on all sides. Like there was never a shot fired at Loco. There was never an incident at Loco. The community respected what we were trying to create there for those who bought into it and wanted to be a part of it. Like it was a place where you can spend eight to 10 hours of your day and have nothing to worry about. Now you um, were asked to come up and open a branch of local in Oakland here, locally where I live. What was that like? I mean, it must've been a challenge to kind of come into a new place and you know, where you'd never lived before and kind of open something brand new. I mean, going to Oakland for me probably saved my life, bro. Um, 
just being able to get away from the community and all the pressures and all the things that came along with it. Um, and, and traveling to go somewhere else that didn't rev, um, involve selling drugs, right? So I went to Oakland and I was able to decompress. You know, I was able to walk to the store. I was able to come outside of my slippers. <laughs> you know, I was able to move throughout the community without the worry of looking over my shoulder all the time. Um, I was able to go out. Local really, um, Oakland really helped me to start stepping into myself and realizing that there is life outside of Watts. Um, we hired the same way. You know, we went to marginalized other served communities and we did a job fair and I hired the per if we needed 40 employees, I hired the first 40 people that showed up, right? And you had a lot of them from East Oakland and West Oakland, right? That was working in there. And it was a beautiful thing to see that because I've come to realize that East Oakland and West Oakland has their own rivalry going on and the different communities within similar to Watts. But we had these kids under this roof all working together, partying together, having a good time and feeding their community. And that's, and doing it in Watts and then turn around and being able to do it in Oakland, that set my path for my frame of thought and the way I'm thinking about hiring and my impact in the community. That's, that's my whole thing and that's all I do now. That's what we did with Alta and that's how I will move forward with any restaurant that I open. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.ch norcal.org. Can we talk about your restaurant Alta a little bit uh, for the people that are not familiar with it? Yeah. What do you want to know about Alta? Tell me about the restaurant, what kind of food you cook and what was your idea going into it? Like what you wanted to kind of see as a vision. So, I know in LA, um, when it comes to soul food or comfort food or whatever, black food, you always, it, it just comes on a styrofoam plate, right? Um, working in the Bay Area, Daniel had a restaurant empire and I was able to venture through these restaurants and pick up chefs. So I got to work with various chefs. I got to see different techniques. I got to see um, different dishes and, and different styles of cooking. And I just started to imagine what the food I grew up with would be like if I applied some of these things. The first time I went to a Whole Foods, the first time I went to a farmer's market was in Oakland, in San Francisco. And just thinking about what the food would be like if I created with these fresh raw ingredients you know, food that's pre-loved, you know. Um, so I started thinking of a concept of California soul food, you know, creating food that I grew up with that showcased the beautiful bounty that California has to offer, you know, farm the table, doctor table. And when researching um, the diaspora and my enslaved ancestors and going back to Africa, what I was thinking about creating was totally in line with how we were, how we ate back in Africa anyway. You ate what you caught, you ate what you grew and what grew, grew in season, right? So I wasn't recreating the wheel. I was just taking something that was old and lost and revitalizing it. Like, so I just, and doing so, I just took the soul food from the South and deframed it and reframed it using California ingredients, farm the table, doctor table, the multicultural influence that California has, 
bringing in some of those ingredients and flavors and created California soul food. Daniel Patterson is famously critical of structural inequalities that have resulted in a lack of diversity in restaurant ownership and rapidly gentrifying cities like San Francisco and Oakland. What's your take on this topic? Has anything improved? As far as what? Like uh, just like the inequalities in restaurants, the lack of diversity in restaurant ownership? No, nothing's yeah. improved. Yeah. Not at all. Hell no. Nothing's improved. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to go deep into that, but no, nothing's improved. Yeah. It took um, a while for you to get ownership at Alta. Why did it take so long and what was ownership so important for you? It took so long because nothing has improved. Yeah. Nothing has improved, right? But I fought for what I believe was mine. I fought for an agreement that was made prior to opening a restaurant. Um, one of the hardest things that some people don't understand or don't get is that you have someone like me who grew up in an impoverished community that has no resources, right? Who gets an opportunity, who gets an opportunity and they don't have the infrastructure in place. <clears throat> they don't have access to lawyers. Yeah. They don't have funds to pay lawyers. They don't have any of these things to help guide them on their first opportunity. So a lot of times they, it, it, they get the short end of the stick, right? Yeah. And, 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 and for some people they can fight to get that seat at the table. For some, they take that as a learning experience and make better choices on their second deal. For a lot of them, they just fall right back down in the bucket. You know, that chance was taken from me. And I didn't wanna be that guy who first chance was taken, so I fought. One thing I wanted to ask you about the book was that um... When people write memoirs, obviously you're going to have friends and family look at it later on. Did anybody have any feedback for the book after it came out? Yeah, you have. Everyone loves the book because um, the book is truthful. Yeah. I didn't um, embellish, I didn't shame anyone. I kept the story centered around me, my life, my point of view. Um, my experiences, um, and doing that, I had to bring characters in who helped influence me or, or, you know, to tell a story about my journey, about conflict, um, things, relationships, things like that. But I also, in writing this book out of respect, when I mention a person in the book, I'm talking about them in the book, I sent them that version and, and I wanted them to know. And if there was any way of still being tr truthful, but shape it in a way that they were comfortable with, I was open to that. But for the most, for the most part, the book has been getting great reviews. Um, I did just see a review today where I read, it said they gave the book. So right now on Amazon, the book is a, 4.8 out of five. But I seen a two-star review. So I wanted to read the review, just some feedback. And you had a lady say, oh, same old thing, right? And I'm taking it as, you know, same old black story, prison, drugs, this, that, and the other. And, and it kind of bothered me. And it's like, well, if it's the same old thing, then you don't see that there's a problem there? Yeah. That doesn't activate you. That doesn't anger you. That every black successful story start off with drugs, poverty, and jail. Like you don't see that. Okay, damn. Then it has to be a problem if this is everyone's experience. So it's not a choice. These young men are not choosing to do this because if you're saying a hundred percent or whatever percent 
is high enough for you to say you're hearing the same thing over and over again, then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to partner? Are you, are you going to protest like you do when something's going wrong in your white world? Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, how can you just say, oh, same old thing? And like, yeah, two stars, same old shit. I've been hearing this all the time. Then do something about it. It tells you there's a problem. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I wish they could write. I wish you could answer people on the reviews on Amazon. That'd be, I'd love to see you say, be able to say all that. That'd be beautiful. How did it feel to hold the book in your hand when it came out? Like, was it thrilling for you to see that new book come out? You know what? It's still, I'm still processing it. Like, because again, like I say, these are things that you imagine. I didn't even say dream of, but you imagine it, but you automatically, in that imagination, just believe that it's unattainable, right? And then it's, it's not so much you have to celebrate growing up in that, in that system like that. You know, you, you, you grow up feeling so overwhelmed and pressured with the system designed to trip you up that in like you don't have many celebrations you know yeah. you're fighting the whole time like you're fighting to survive fighting to live the whole entire time and celebrations is just not it's not something you get used to so i didn't have that emotional attachment to celebration so when we're celebrating the book I, I love that everybody was proud of me, happy, we're having a good time. I just haven't had a chance to tap into that, damn, you know? Yeah. That, that emotion. And, but I'm working on it, working on it. One thing I felt when I finished the book is that I thought, wow, I really like this story and I'd like to hear more. Maybe that's a little bit greedy of me, but or do, you, or do you think you might write some more or write, write another kind of a follow-up to the book? So you mean to tell me you read that story and you didn't think, oh, this is the same old thing? No, <laughs> I did not. I didn't. That was not me writing that review. <laughs> and, and, and the thing about it is, I, I can get that, right? And that's another one of the inspirations on how I told my story. When I was sitting in prison, I used to read urban novels. Now, these are fiction. They yeah. fictionalized stories but they're modeled off of our culture, our, our community, you know, um, the drug culture, the hustle, this, that, and the other. And I would pick up the book and right off the back, I would, I can tell the story because I lived it. You gonna have four characters, right? Yeah. Grew up together, they're hustling. One person get killed. One person goes to prison. One person tells on everybody else and one person makes it out. You never get the story about the out. It's always that the out was good enough. That's where the story stopped. That's why it was important for me to tell the out part about how hard it is once you get through this quote unquote magic door, right? And dump all these tropes about once you get a job or once you make it out that everything in your life before that goes away. And I wanted to make sure that I let people know that from my experience, none of that stuff goes away. And every day you have to fight for every step forward you take and for every level of success you obtain, you have to fight hard and hard and hard to hold on to that. I was standing in this kitchen preparing for dinner service when I got a call that my 76 year old father was murdered in his car, leaving a store because he was driving too slow. Jesus. Somebody was blowing a horn, he pulled over to the side, they put on the side of the car and they shot him. So that, I immediately went to my car to drive out there and act crazy, like the old me. And I had to stop for a moment, I had to process it. And I had to fight hard to hold on to what I've accomplished and the lives that I was helped change, you know? And after a moment, I just calmed down and I drove to the scene and was able to identify my father's body 
they go through that process, right? So I came through this quote unquote magic door still with a drug addiction. I came through this magic door in debt. I came through this magic door with a prison record. None of that stuff goes away. Yeah. Right? So just making it out wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to tell people what making it out looks like, the nuances. So for that lady, if you're listening, this is not the same old thing. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's not the same old thing. Your portrayal of addiction was the most real I've ever seen in any work. And I felt like that was intentional for you. You wanted to really have somebody kind of see the day-to-day -day of it and what the struggle was like. Have you heard any feedback from other people that were inspired by this? Yes. Oh, man, I get my DMs flooded. I get emails. I get calls to the restaurant. People show up to the restaurant to talk to me about the book, not even to come eat. You know, I talk them into eating. But um, my intention was to reach people and uh, inspire people. And, and it's done that. I, I, I just couldn't imagine how many people would actually reach out to let me know how the book touched them. You know, I've had um, a gentleman, a white guy, reach out to me and literally told me that, you know, he's an engineer, wife owns her own company, um, bakery. They're well off, they're, they're fine, has a kid, didn't grow up in an impoverished community, didn't have the struggles that I had, but he landed up in LA County Jail and the son came home different. And he didn't never want to talk about it, his experience. So they didn't know how to help him. But in reading this book and my depiction of LA County Jail, especially sharing what it's like to be white in LA County Jail, yeah. gave them a starting point on how to get their child some help. Right? Like, those are the stories. You know what I mean? Like, that's what the book is for. It's not only to motivate and inspire, it's to educate people on what really is going on, the truth about these systems, um, the truth about the poverty, the truth about drug addiction. I wanted to let you see what my life looked like on drugs. It wasn't just about, it just wasn't about saying, yeah, I use drugs for, this amount of years and I got clean, no. Let me tell you what this looked like. So if you're reading this and you're thinking about it, no, you don't wanna go down this path. If you're coming out of it, I want you to know I was where you were at, right? It's not just about, oh, I use drugs. You can't say, yeah, you use drugs, but you wasn't as bad as I. No, brother, I'm telling you, it was bad. So I can tell you that you can overcome it. Just take some help, take some right people in your corner. You know, you gotta accept that help. When people extend that hand, trust them and accept that help and you can overcome it. I, again, I wanna say, I hope to see uh, more writing from you because I really love this. And I, I think that you've got a lot more in you. So I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, um, it's crazy because the, the publisher had asked for something else too. So- Are you surprised by that? Because you seem surprised by that. I mean, because it's a memoir, right? Yeah. So the memoir came out August 16th. So it's like, I haven't lived enough from August 16th to now to write a second memoir. Um, but I'm thinking about an extended version. I'm thinking about um, more stories from like my, my lifestyle. I'm, I'm thinking about how I can continue to um, spread the word, you know, the last thing I want is to write anything where I want people to feel sorry for me or, yeah. you know, I'm a finger at the system. Like I have some accountability in the choices that I make, but then also the choices are limited, you know? And so just telling these stories about what it's really like, um, for someone like me, you know, without, you know, this pity party. 
Well, it's, you know, it's funny because I really I thought you're a good storyteller and you're a good writer and that you really have a wonderful economy in your writing. You're really able to succinctly get to the meat of the topic and really write it with a you don't have a lot of floweriness to your writing. You really kind of like have this kind of spare kind of getting down to brass tacks writing style. I want it to be as if when you read what I write, I want you to want to be transformed to that place, right? Yeah. I want it to either feel like I'm standing there telling you the story. Like we're in conversation and I'm talking to you. That's important, right? I want to put you there at that time in that period and we're just, and I'm just talking to you. That's how I write, that's how I envision it because that's how I talk. You, um, I mean, there was a few times early on in the book when you're writing about prison that I had to kind of put the book down a few times because it got me in like kind of an agitated state. Was that kind of intentional? Um, I don't know if it was intentional to get you in an agitated state, like kind of you, you describe it so well, I felt like I was there, you know? Yeah. So, but it, it is to educate people um, on what's going on in the prisons. Yeah. And again, not to feel sorry, right? No. But false, to, count these, to combat these false narratives, right? And to get people to kind of open their eyes, like, you know, there is absolutely no such thing as rehabilitation in prison. No. Prison is a smaller extension of our community. We're treated the same, inadequate medical care, inadequate resources, low level food, poverty. It's all going on in prison, right? And then if you think about it, you have these politicians and these prison corporations or whoever they are want to put this narrative out of invest the money into programs to rehabilitate felons. It's like, that doesn't make sense because you can put the money in the community prior to the kids even going to prison. But you don't do that. You choose to put it in prison, you're lying. Like you're not putting any monies in, in these prisons. And we wouldn't want you to. I'd rather you put it in the community before the kids go to prison. But the reason they don't is because prison is big business. Right, like you're 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 packaging Victoria's Secret clothes. You're making the glasses for, that you're wearing. Those glasses you're wearing were probably framed in prison. The license plate on your car is made in prison. The bikes that your kids are riding are welded in prison. The computers that you have, the motherboards are probably put together in prison. Right, like it's labor. You're making nine. The highest paid job is 15 to 19 cent an hour. Like it's big business. They don't talk about that. Prisoners, prison is a business for cheap labor, period, point blank. And that's why they won't put in resources in the community to stop the uh, prison, the pipeline, the pipeline, the prison shit. They won't do that. No. Like they're not going to. They need bodies in prison to fill these quarters. You got to think about it. The prison owners get paid for every body that's in there. $1,000 a day, $500 a day, $2,000 a day, whatever it is, for every single person that's on one of those bunks, the people that own the prison gets paid for housing them by the state. And then that goes companies also get contracts from corporations and companies for cheap labor. It's a business. I'm so glad you wrote about that in your book, because I don't think most people even know or are aware of that. I know that I had an idea or inkling, but your book really kind of hammers home that idea of how much of what we have in our culture is created by prisoners. And a lot of people are just making, it's like an industry, like they're making money out of it. And it's, it's a kind of a mind-blowing thing to realize, I think, for a lot of people. Your milk comes from prisoners. Your eggs, Chino Valley, anything say Chino Valley comes from prisoners. Your eggs, your cheese, your milk, all that's packed up in prison. 
shipped out. Do you think that a prison is an outdated construct that we maybe need to kind of do away with it and refigure it out? I mean, the, the I, my belief, this is how I feel, because I, you know, I, I live the life up against the system and people can look at it or take it for what they, what they want. There is a system designed to keep a class of people down, to keep a community of people down for whatever reason. You got to think about the, the Constitution of America was created during a time where there was segregation, where you had slaves, right? So they wrote the Constitution for one race of people to prevail and to keep another class of people down or another race of people down. We're still operating under that Constitution through modifies and redendums uh, and all that. But overall, we're still operating off of a system that was created at a time period where Blacks didn't have any value in America. So as long as we still operate under that, it like, you know, it's just going to be what it's going to be. Like, it almost circles. Really Go ahead. Sorry. It almost circles back to... Um when you were fired from the job is punishing somebody who's already been punished. It's like an additional punishment and it's never letting up. No, but you gotta think about it like this. Okay, you go to prison, you come home from prison and in order to get off parole, there's requirements, right? They want you to have a place to stay, costly. They want you to have a job, right? If I can't get a job because of my prison record, then I can't afford a place to stay and I never get off parole, right? So that lingers me in a, that puts me in a position where I am going back to prison. I come home from prison, the requirement for me to get off of parole is to get a job, but the system is set up for me not to be hired because I've been to prison. How the hell does that work? It, I, it makes no sense, it's, it's illogical because it's set up for me to go back to prison. They have to feed these, they have to keep these contracts going. They have to have bodies in there. People get paid off every time I go back to prison, people get paid. There's money made. So it, it's, it's, it's the lobbies too. Like, and, and this is a whole other conversation. Yeah. For whoever is listening, there's a system set up to keep people down and there is a, a pipeline of prison system set up for profits. Keith, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you today, and I really want to encourage everybody to go out and get California Soul, an American epic of cooking and survival. Keith, thank you for being on the program. Thank you. That was my conversation with Keith Corbin regarding his book, California Soul, and his career. I really want to thank uh, Keith for being so very gracious and so very nice to me and doing this interview with me. You know, I know that he's very busy and he took a lot of time out of his day to talk with me. And, you know, I, I felt at times very clumsy and very inept in the interview. And he was nothing but kind and gracious through the whole thing. And just so nice to me through the whole interview. And I just really want to, you know, give him a very heartfelt thank you for, uh, you know, taking the time out to talk to me. He had some very important words to say. And again, I don't want to dilute what he said um, with my comments further or my feelings about the interview. I just really am very grateful that he took the time to talk to me and, and kind of really kind of lay some things out very simply. And I hope you listened to this and heard it and it had some impact on you. If you've not read his book yet, California Soul is a very important book and I'm recommending this to everybody and I will continue to do so. Um, this is a great book that should be taught in schools. It should be required reading. Um, and also it should, should be read by everybody because it really talks about America and, uh, a very honest and open way as Keith was very open and honest with me and just very matter of fact. And I really appreciate that. I want to urge you again to read this book and we're going to have links to it in the bio. You could buy it online through jobbers, or you can go and get it at better bookstores. You can get it through the library. You can get it in many places, so please do. I hope you're going to be with us next week. We're going to have Tara Teaspoon on. 
She has a new book out, Live Life Deliciously with Tara Teaspoon, Recipes for Busy Weekdays and Leisurely Weekends. Please uh, join us then to listen to my conversation with Tara. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you feel like sharing it with a friend, please do. Uh, please share it on social media. Let people know about it. We always appreciate new listeners. If you want to buy me a cup of coffee or a pint, uh, you can leave a tip online at the link in the bio. We want to thank Asian Man Records for supplying us with the theme song, Talk About Love by Kitty Cat Fan Club. You can go onto the AsianManRecords.com website, see the bands that they host, see what concerts are coming up, buy bumper stickers, uh, hoodies, t-shirts, etc. They got several good things there. Check it out. Hope you all have a really great week. And again, you've really listened to this conversation and learn from it, or, or it gives you food to thought to learn from it, uh, as it, I believe it hopefully has done for me. Um, hope you have a great week and keep on cooking. I've been getting